Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I have Alex Wolf, the co-owner of Wayfaring. Alex is a performance consultant with a strength and conditioning CV that speaks for itself. He has previously been head of learning, head of strength and conditioning, and the technical lead at the English Institute of Sport, as well as the lead S&C coach for GB Rowing, amongst other sporting roles. Alex, in this episode, shares a wealth of technical knowledge and thinking on the topic of adaptation-led programming, so this is definitely an episode to get your notepad ready for. Without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Alex Wolf. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, mate. Thanks for having me. Just to begin with, for anyone that maybe hasn't heard of you, could you just explain your background and just give us a little bit of context to what you've done? Yeah, okay. So I currently um, work for myself, um, and the the work I do is kind of two streams. One one stream is still working in sports performance and uh, consulting with uh, governing bodies, uh, sports organisations around uh, strength conditioning and um, people development and some of their kind of strategic um, uh, strategic stuff around performance. Um, and the other side is very much around people development. Uh, leadership and uh, learning um, in and in and around sport, but also within within business too. Um, previous to that, I spent fifteen years, just over fifteen years, working for the English Institute of Sport, um, where I uh, most recently held the position of head of learning, uh, which was looking at the organisation and the individual learning needs um, of the entire organisation, but mostly around practitioners and the sports staff going to Olympic and Paralympic Games. I was head of S&C for six years, which was looking after all of the Olympic, Paralympic sport S&C coaches and then spent a large amount of my time within rowing for another six years and multi-sport and athletics for, for that. So that was that's primarily, primarily my background, mostly strength conditioning, but kind of diversified in the kind of latter latter years to where I am now to kind of more, more um, uh, learning and development than uh, purely uh, strength conditioning. Yeah. And for the listeners' benefit, ahead of today's episode, Alex kindly shared a presentation of uh, some work he's done around adaptation-led programming. So in this episode, we're going to dive into a little bit of S&C-specific topics. Um, Alex, we'll we'll get into the context of this topic as we go and your presentation, but to create some context, could you tell us a little bit about the, the thought process and the journey that led to this presentation? Yeah, sure. I, I was always really unsatisfied with the way in which um there was this massive assumption and this massive leaps of faith that you would take that if you started doing strength training or you back squatted someone that that would automatically then apply to somebody running faster um or jumping higher whatever whatever it was and it was these were big leaps of faith and we always kind of go from this first principle base of like well if we get stronger then um it should theoretically make something uh better and i and 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 I, we all kind of got there and that's what we're taught when we're at university and a lot of the educational stuff that's out there still talks about this first principles base um, and I remember being in a, in a meeting actually with Mark Young and James Moore and a, f- a number of other uh, S&C coaches I think Pete McKnight was in there as well and that's a, and um, we're all debating about the the uh, strength levels that sprinters require to run a sub 10 second 100 meters and then dave collins who was the performance director at the time said you need to stop making strength conditioning look good and start making performance look good and i always use that as kind of my reference point to going 
go back to is like we always judge ourselves on weight and performance and we kind of forget that actually no one actually wins a race by how much they squat and outside of powerlifting and weightlifting and maybe a few strongman competitions that actually the load on the bar is irrelevant so there had to be something that that load or the type of exercise that was um, being completed was giving you beyond actually the squat or whatever exercise it was to be able to then uh, elicit a performance outcome so that's 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 when I, where, where I started and then as I spent a lot of time with a guy called Chris McLeod um, and we we came at the same problem but from two different perspectives so I was going from much more of a structural point of view like actually you know why why do we want structural change i.e. why do you want to get stronger uh, in the early days that's what, and he was coming from a much more movement perspective of like actually everything we need to do needs to be able to try and um, uh, uh, improve a movement function or uh, a movement outcome and this is where I kind of got to this point around um, that ultimately the um, we need to be focusing much more intentionally on the adaptation that we that that we know is much more conducive to the to the performance outcome so actually strength is not an outcome strength is a methodology or strength training is a methodology the outcome is to change a, a maximal force uh, capability or a rate of force development capability and we need to understand what those are and once we understand what those are we can then start understanding what kind of methods we can apply to ascertain that method uh, that that outcome and then that then starts changing your thought process about if that that's the most effective um way to go about it and i was sitting in a hotel room about three o'clock in the morning in uh, singapore when i was presenting at a conference and i was trying to stay in uk time because i was coming back for two days to fly off to somewhere else and um i remember just sitting in the room and this kind of eureka moment and i rang chris mcleod up um in in there i was like i've I've kind of thought about it like actually adaptation is entirely separate to methodology um like if the if the maximal force let's let's talk i think i was talking about rowing and and like if we take that we know that for a rower that concentric uh knee extension maximal force production is critical for how fast a boat or how fast a boat can uh, how fast a rower can make the boat move so if, if that is the most critical or one of the most critical components, what's the most effective exercise that we can do that? Well, it wouldn't be squat or deadlift. It would be knee extension. So why don't we use just pure knee extension-based exercises? And I'm not preparing functional exercises, but when you broke it right the way down to the very fundamental uh, adaptation you were going after, uh, and that's where you have to be really, really specific. So concentric maximal forces of, an, of the knee extensor is, is probably as, as, as specific as you can nearly get to. Um, then it made real sense to then start trying to trying to change uh, change that. And then we started talking about some of the sprinters and like um, when I was training, I actually went working with in the London region with Ben uh, Ben um, Ashworth, um, Usain Bolt used to train there in preparation for the. Um, uh, I think it was Diamond Leagues or Golden Leagues, whatever it was back then. Um, and he'd be in the gym and he'd just be doing knee extensions and um, uh, calf raises and so on. And that was all he was doing. And everyone was mocking him because he wasn't couldn't lift properly, but he was shifting some gear, uh, on uh, some weight on that. And that was that's where it kind of got me thinking as well. And me and Chris were talking when I was in this hotel room. It's like, well, maybe that's why. Again, it's all hy- hypothetical, but maybe that's why that he inadvertently or deliberately had worked out that actually the most effective way to improve joint talk is to apply 
talk around the knee, which is greater than his habitual capability, um, which you can't necessarily do with a back squat. Um, so that's kind of where we got to. That's kind of and the presentation you kind of uh, went uh, that, that I shared with you is kind of taking it through a number of iterations to where it is now. Um, and I should also say, like, just because I've written this and I talk about it doesn't mean it's right. It's just a, a theoretical full process which is uh, you've seen the literature in there it, it is evidence-based and it's experience-based um and it and it's worked for us but, um and actually if there's any listeners that agree or disagree or has a, a a reaction to it it'd be great to hear what they've got to say about it as well because it's a um it's a fascinating topic because it's probably not what people most uh or particularly strength conditioning really think about when they start talking about adaptation of programming well there'll definitely be someone out there um, disgruntled that you're not telling everybody to squat so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, yeah so but it, you know it pushes the conversation forwards anyway um, yeah. I think a lot of coaches and uh, clinicians especially as well will be prescribing exercises um, having learned or touched upon some physiology in their in their baseline training um, but they don't always necessarily factor into their real-time decision making when they write a program or maybe give somebody a rehab exercise um, you know, early on in the presentation that you shared with me, you are, and you mentioned it then, you meant you ask a question of why do we strength train? Um, out of kind of curiosity, what is there any kind of typical answers that you repeatedly hear coaches uh, give you to that question? Um, in in the early days, yes, not so much. Now, uh, that's partly because of the role, like the roles I had in terms of. Uh, hell of S&C with AEIS where I was in a privileged position to start sharing this thought and almost make it a philosophical approach around um, strength conditioning um, but yeah like um, pe- people people joke about you know like why, why do we strength train and the, the, the old answer used to be well to get stronger and um, and then, then we started dissecting what people really meant by um getting stronger and strengthening so so many different things um um so that was and that was the 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 first bit and i think probably most most clinicians with the exception of 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 a few would also go down the route of like so it's around around strength and actually if you want to go really deep into that like the definition of strength with the physios i've worked with um um, it's different to the way I des- describe strength, and it's just based upon contextual understanding of what it means in that in that space. And until we have clarity on on that, then it became you know when I was, when we're working rowing, we're talking about getting stronger, and physios were talking about doing strength training. It wasn't really strength training; it was more kind of work capacity based work. Um, but that was our differentiation of of, of education and understanding what it was. Um, where people got to now. Um, I, I describe it now uh, in the presentation as um, uh, to uh, change a, uh, a force or a velocity uh, or a rate of force characteristic within within the biological system, um, and that's really it's simply as, as you can get it. And no, no one would ever say it like that because that's my words and it's probably quite clunky. Um, but people are like the, the guys that I've worked with. Um, uh, most recently, and I'm doing, doing some doing, sort of doing some work um, with um, out, out in China. The, the coaches I work with, they're they're starting to really think about that within their programming now, and it's really pushing forward how they're starting to work with the athletes that they're working with. But that was very different to what they were thinking about nine, ten months ago. Um, 
And then the question then becomes, you know, if, if strength training is a method and not an outcome, well, how relevant is the question? How strong is strong enough? And that's often we had that banded around, like, like, like we've got to stop talking about strength as a as an outcome and strength as a direct measure of a performance, uh, and that it can predict a, a performance. And actually, it's nothing. It's nothing to do with that. It's it's, a, it's around the physical characteristic or the adaptive response that strength training gives you. Um, so I've kind of stopped having discussions around how strong is strong enough like how strong does the row need to be well it's an irrelevant question so let's not even entertain it let's think about what how much force does a knee need to create during a knee extension during the dry phase of a rowing stroke 20 250 times during a race well we can measure that we know it's between for a male 800 and 1200 newtons of force well how does a knee go through 800 to 1200 newtons of force during the rowing stroke um when they have lumbar spine intolerance so you can't squat them um heavy enough to create create that so how are you going to find a way of putting 800 1200 newtons of uh, newtons of uh, uh, torque through the through the knee joint and that's kind of the discussions we now have it's like what's the most effective way to create the joint torque or the um the force production required to elicit that adaptive response so it's kind of what the task needs or it's um or i guess maybe biologically it's a it's not it's a scoreboard for knowing that you've adapted a tissue as well to a certain level. Um, if you're trying to make a tissue level change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, one of the things, uh, lecturing at Queen Mary's university, London on their sports medicine, their MSc, and we went through this worksheet. Um, and what I wanted to get the, the students on there to think about is like when you're starting to apply exercises or methods to try and create change, like, those methods have to elicit an adaptive response greater than what that individual athlete's habitual load is. So if, if I, um, if the, uh, I, I, I use an example in, 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 in netball, um, primary, cause it's a, it was a re- real example. But the, when there, when uh, there was some, there was some testing going on, um, which was looking at change of direction. It was looking at penultimate step going into change of direction, and there was a relationship between how much force the athlete could produce on the penultimate step going to change of direction, to the speed of the whatever the change of direction test was, five oh five or whatever it was. I, I can't remember what it was now. So, um, we now have a, a genuine value of what that 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 uh, human is able to produce through the system um, um and then uh the training program gets written and i go into the gym um because the coach has asked me to like the struggling to see struggling to help this athlete make change and it's a maximal strength training program so you know the training program looks great it's five times five and their max effort, efforts in the weight room but i walk in there and there's a 58 kilo female uh, athlete squatting 45 kilos for for, for um, five reps, which was their max. Like, what is 45 kilos really gonna actually do? Like, that's, you know, in in real sense, we put that into into newtons, around 450 newtons of, of force. We know, like, and, and I know that's system force and not necessarily around hip or knee, and it might be slightly larger, but 45 kilos of load in a max strength training program isn't going to do jackal. It, it, it's, it's an ineffective method to change a, an F max. And that was, that was where, um, where we got to. So we have this value and now we now have to work out how to get that athlete to that value. So that we went, we kind of dissected it and 
the the coach was adamant that um, the athletes all had to back squat. That was the only thing they could that they they should do. Um, and none of them at the time that, that you know, those athletes were squatting more than 70, 75 kilos. And so probably 1.1 body weight and it wasn't particularly that good. And, you know, they were producing three or four times body weight on a change of direction. Uh, and I know that's instantaneous and there's a rate of force component in there, but that the act of changing a physical characteristic wasn't being um, uh, exploited within the weight room. It didn't match the demand that was that was acquired, and that's where, where I was saying about the benchmark is if you know what 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 has to happen, then um, that's what we're that's what we're going to go for. So in in this lecture, uh, we went for this workshop with the with the students, and we, when I basically said, you know, we worked out what some of them were working when they're working in some football, and I was like, well, okay, how much force does a, the uh, a footballer produce during a change of direction in a in a um, uh, uh, in the football game? And they're like, oh, I don't know. It's like, well, and it was an ankle rehab, I think it was, uh, around some Achilles problem. And, and I said, and you're getting them to do three times 15 body weight um, uh, single leg calf raises. I said, do you think that's really, you know, at the end stage of rehab going to be anywhere near what their their uh, uh, triceps theory and Achilles needs to go through before they get back in there? And they just couldn't answer the question. Um because I just didn't know how much more it needed to be. And that's because most of the stuff is still methodology based. You know, we still go, we still talk about methods to achieve, um, uh, to, to, we need to achieve a certain method to get somewhere where actually if we go, the method is what gets us to the outcome and that benchmark is where the outcome is. So it's a really challenging way to, um, kind of look at it because it, it properly challenges what you think is important and as strength conditioning coaches who've probably been educated in a way where uh, traditional barbell lifting and Olympic lifting is is king and everyone should be doing it because it's kind of functional it like work challenges your way around that is it if you know if an athlete cannot produce the right amount of torque around a joint while completing those exercises and we know what the joint torque needs to be well let's find the most effective way to create that joint torque um, and overload it and um, that for me so outcome or, or um Function is a product of uh, outcome, not method. And I think that's probably the critical thing for us, that um, we've got to stop looking at methods as a way of uh, achievement and looking at function as a product of outcome, not not the, the squat or whatever else it might look like. I think when people are, I think when people's primary focus is the, is the method, I always kind of think that, you know, you're, when you make a change to a program or you write the first program, the canvas is almost too blank and you know when you then correct the program how do you justify one exercise versus another if you know if a few people are tra- are writing a program for the same athlete ideally there should be some overlap there should be some agreeable principles in place that although they might slightly achieve it with different nuances there should be some overlap in in the approach at least yeah potentially um but th- this that then comes to the second point around uh, clarity and being really really explicit about what you're trying to change so if you look at training programs um where there's ambiguous targets so like i'll improve maximal strength like it's like well if you're if you're talking about improving maximal strength for the lower body what does what does that really mean 
So, like, if, if you're working with a cyclist or you're working with a, a footballer or whatever it is, you can be probably quite specific about what you need to need to change. And the best SNC coaches I've worked with are the ones that can really drill down around the adaptation or the or the outcome they need to go after. So then it becomes really clear. Like, so there is loads of clarity and a lot of crossover of what what can happen to get to that point. The challenge is is when the the outcome is so broad. That the exercise methodologies have to be able, have to be selected to cover all the eventual possibilities that that could be, and I think that's that's a problem. Is that our 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 outcomes are too too broad, and it means that we have to use certain types of exercises, which cover all that broad spectrum of how it may be interpreted. Whereas if we go really narrow to about the, the things we need to go after and be really explicit, then that that um, gives us a much greater focus on every single methodology that's possible to get to that one that one point um and i think that's that's the challenge so when we, we so you would like to see crossover with people with writing the um the programs for the same same athlete but i think you have to go one step further um and i think probably the title of the slide slide deck should change to kind of outcome focused adaptation rather than um adaptation programming um adaptation led program because it it goes back to the rate the fundamental what are we trying to change um and how do we know if we've made that change um and what do we need to do to get to that change um and that's fundamentally where it is and i think we're not clear enough on change um we're, we're too broad and we can like i know not everyone's blessed enough to have all the strength diagnostics facilities and equipment um as some organizations but there are still ways of being very explicit about the things that you need to change um and until that bit clears up it's always going to be a real problem for us to then go back to a um, um an outcome-based uh, model rather than a method-based model i feel there's a lot of overlap with what you've just said about clarity and uh being explicit into the into the physio space as well because i mean i'm I'm sure you can probably um you'll probably have experienced this as well being around james and ben but i think the the best clinicians i've been around their assessment is very in-depth and then their understanding on the athlete is very explicit and detailed but then the actual the intervention that they select isn't always the most complicated or there's not too many interventions in place whereas i think other people maybe shortcut the assessment piece and then they, they're forced to throw this kind of battery or cluster approach of treatments to try and make a change. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I think the um, uh, often when you start um, uh, looking at the uh, the outcome or the, kind of the, the methods you get to, and, and then really, really and I'll, I'll use my example one that worked with, with, with rowing, like the British Rowing Programme, like, my rowing programs were really, really simple. There was a, a hell of a lot of leg pressing in there. Um, there's a little bit of squatting in there, and there was lots of um, seated row and, and, and bench press. So really, it was just a typical meathead training program. But I had to go through this whole cycle to get it back to, well, these are the things that I had to, I had to change. Um, and it took seven or eight years i suppose of going through that iterative process to get to a point it's like well these are the, these, these are the things why it's really really simple just we're going to do that and we're not going to try and make the exercise look like rowing and we're not going to try and um do things too too complicated and, and then for some rowers you know they you know, going back to the knee extension concentric knee extension that's all they did like because it was the safest way to change the uh, the knee extension uh concentric max force because they couldn't tolerate any, anything else and i remember presenting this 
Um, I can't remember where I present it now, probably EIS and probably elsewhere, and um, being shot down as this very mediocre training program. I was like, yeah, but you focus on the training program and not the decision-making and critical thinking that got to that point of how I ended up there. Um, so the program got slated, rightly or wrongly, um, but nothing was ever said about how I got to that point in the first place, But um, which is what, which I'd always say is when you, whenever you see any training program, like, like don't critique the program, critique the, the, the decision-making that gets you there. Yeah. I mean, I, it does make me laugh when you say that in a nice way because I feel like uh, coaches for years were persuaded to Olympic lift and, and go quite complex on their programming. And then I guess they've got athletes to buy into some quite complex training methods. Um, and then <laughs> I, can, I guess you've turned around at some point in time and, and actually given them a much simpler um, program to get their heads around. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's simpler for me as well. Like, like, um, like, and, and uh, like the uh, a friend of mine, um, Mark Campbell, who's a technical lead for the EIS up in um, Sheffield for strength conditioning, like his, his, he came over from New Zealand within about fifteen minutes of meeting him. The first thing he, he said to me was like, "Keep it, keep it simple, stupid." Um, I was like, "Okay, yeah, I've got that." And actually, that's what people need is is, is simplicity. But the simplicity also comes um with clarity um and i think when you're really clear about what you're doing you can't do some of these complex methods because it doesn't actually attain what you need and you know i'm not not preparing things like crossfit or anything like that but because they'll clearly have huge benefits for um uh what large portions of populations and for health and fitness and you know the crossfit games are amazing but you couldn't apply the general CrossFit principles into a, a rowing performance because the outcomes of what you're trying to achieve are so entirely different. Um, so you just couldn't do it. So, and, but I think that's what I mean by the methods is like, well, we, we use this type of method and, um, and it's like, well, you just totally lost sight of what you're trying to change here. And, um, and that for me is, is the, the most critical component of it. And a lot of your presentation, uh, kind of grossly speaking, splits programming adaptions into into two camps of sort of neural and structural. Um, yeah. And then within this, you divide up different training qualities into into those categories of kind of structural, local local coordination, and global coordination. Can you yeah. um, can you kind of describe these and just share some practical examples of where maybe certain exercises could get grouped to create context? Yeah. So the, the uh, yeah okay um so yeah the structural part for us is actually where you're trying to change the the structural quality of the of the the system the tissue or structure so it's it's uh, i don't know it's uh, increasing uh sarcomere length or in series you're trying to say cross-sectional area or you're trying to change penation angle or you're trying to increase um uh mitochondrial biogenesis all these kind of actual real uh biological adaptations which allow the structures to increase their ability to create a or generate or produce a uh, force or torque or produce that torque or force being applied against them so that's a real kind of your traditional heavy strength training based methods and in, within that sits with you know your normal kind of uh, what be people normally say max strength power or whatever it is and i'll get onto that later about how i reclassified them but that's kind of your typical strength training side of it all and i put the structure kind of at the kind of top if you draw a triangle you put structure at the top of that um, and as i'm talking about this i should say this this model is in conjunction with with chris mcleod so it's not it's not solely solely my 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 model 
then down below i put in the bottom bottom corners is uh, local and global coordination so it isn't it is entirely possible to have a um a coordinative state of a muscle tendon unit uh almost identical to that uh in an athletic performance i.e let's say um a cutting action um to that of a, a a movement which looks entirely different to a cutting action so there's a load of research if you, if you ever get to read um uh jacob Earp's phd from from 2013 like he looks at a load, a load of stuff around uh, muscle tendon uh, adaptation and um um its function and how in a kind of a very static or very um what's the word isolated exercise you can create uh, muscle timing uh, or rate timing or magnitude of of uh, muscle activity almost identical to that of a of a running task uh, meta zebes from uh, paragard's lab um in denmark she's also done a load of stuff around cutting actions and identified um that uh, the semitendinosus um during cutting action uh, and a kettlebell swing have almost an identical rate timing and magnitude of electrical activity um uh, yeah a kettlebell swing looks nothing like a um uh, a cutting action so there is some there are there are ways of creating a local local coordinative um uh, uh state which is internally specific and what i mean by internally specific is that um uh it's it's kind of the the the, the uh there's optimal muscle tendon interaction there it's, it's driven by load, uh, load speed and position um and that allows for um uh, something to be very um uh very what's the word um a potentially a high degree of of, of uh, transfer from that and so if you start talking talk about the semitendinosis and potentially around knee rehab and the ability after acl to be able to load uh, the knee um and particularly running and how how um, running becomes uh, introduced into late stage rehab. If you need the semitendinosis to be more functional during early stage rehab, well, kettlebell might be a really nice way of doing it because it's internally specific and it might be a high degree of transfer in that. So that's our local coordinative state there, um, and it can be driven um, driven by a task which is almost entirely different to the actual performance task you're looking at. Um, does that make sense or am I yeah. uh, no no that makes, complete, that makes complete sense yeah it's how you break yeah. it down to, yeah. to train it in a specific way yeah and then the the this the so that that sits then down in the let's say the bottom left hand side of the triangle um then on the bottom uh right hand uh corner of the triangle is this kind of global coordination um uh, tasks and this is basically tasks which look identical to the task at hand so um if you're doing high speed running tasks then high speed running tasks need to be um it needs to look like high speed running so you're you're trying to um uh stimulate or trying to uh um engage the attack and slim slinging interactions um and it must be internally and externally specific and the internally specific is the muscle tendon interaction the externally specific it, it, it's the task almost the task at hand so you know if you have slight downhill running at like a one degree that um that has a an, in, an internally and externally specific um uh uh in, um, 
interaction um, and, and internally and externally uh, sp- uh, specific because actually your um, um, the the muscle tendons are behaving as they would in the in in the target hand and it is the event in in, in hand. Another one would be like high speed running uh, with a skipping rope. So if you're trying to work on front side and back side mechanics to try and keep those in. Um, um, in check then high speed running with a skipping rope can can do that again the muscle tendon interaction is um internally and externally specific the the important part around when you start doing more globally specific stuff often um the uh the 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 intention um has to be how do you describe it um uh that of the event itself so you couldn't do um high-speed running with a skipping rope without having timing gates, for instance. So you actually need to make it um, uh, specific in that sense as well. Like You actually have to try and achieve a certain velocity um, or uh, a time over a certain distance. Um, and then a, a colleague of mine and friend, uh, Tim Carroll, who's a – I think he's a neuro, neuro neuroscientist um, over in Queensland. Um, he – he tore it, tore this model apart and the one uh, and and helped us bring it back together again but basically he was saying that and, and unless the task is initiated in the exact same way in which uh it is initiated um within the event itself there is zero neurological um crossover and is that, um, so is that because of the kind of motor schemas that we have sort of top down um uh I think he will go uh, potentially yes, but I think he will, he will basically say like from a cortical and subcortical level that that there's is an, is an entirely different stimulation. So if you're looking at change of direction and you're doing it through colours and hand gestures rather than feints of the hips or shoulders, um, then that's an entirely different task. And he will contest, um, and hopefully he uh, isn't listening to this and corrects me on this, but. Uh, or maybe he should, um, but he would contest that because they're initiated entirely different from a neurological and from a cortical and subcortical level, they're entirely different tasks. So there's, there is very little to any crossover whatsoever. Um, and he would say like that you just cannot, uh, uh, that, that then it becomes no, no longer externally specific, so it's a different task. So if you're looking at um, uh, initiating a 100-meter um, start through the typical gun and then you're... Uh, getting them to do it from a light thing while through rehab, different different initiation. You're you're training a different neurological pathway, um, and the way that the cortical and subcortical um, and paraspinal components um, interact. And because of that, you may not get any change or any transfer. So that's where the externally specific thing becomes really important um, to try and make that. And that's where kind of a lot of um, I think um, Franz Bosch's stuff. Um, around some of the, the, the movement stuff that he, he's tried to do is try to create that externally specific um, and Nick Winkleman as well actually probably a better example um, is try to really create that external um, uh, specificity into it not just the internal specificity and I think that's that's the challenge and the reason why we go through, through those bits there that gives us really clear clearly defined windows of what we're adapting so are we going after structure are we going after local or are we going after a global coordinative state? Um, and my my belief is that you can't go for two or three of them at the same time. Um, and the idea, the reason why I put them on a triangle is that when you write your, you go back to your bit about 
playing one exercise off another and why should why is that exercise in a program it's like well if you um we say we talk about finding the corners so does that exercise go after the structural adaptation you're going after but if it doesn't fully go after that it can't be in that polled corner so it has to sit somewhere in the middle um if you find an exercise which can do say local coordination and structural adaptation as well well it can't be um it can't be both so it can't sit in both corners so it has to sit somewhere in between so then that, then the, the question then becomes is that the most effective exercise to create an adaptive response around structure or a coordinative task around local internal specificity well it, it clearly it can't be because it's doing a bit of both so you have to then find the, the one exercise which does each of those separately so our, our bit is talking about um uh, um uh, that and i think actually Chris McLeod and I were trying to write a, a paper on this to, to, to publish and I thought I'd have loads of times during lockdown but uh, when you've got kids and all the other things that go on in life um, suddenly your day uh, by the time you get to five o'clock you wonder where the day's gone but one of the, we were going to call the paper, paper uh, Fifty Shades of Grey none of them are black and white and, and I think where we got to is this idea is that training should be quite black and white like you need to go find the poles for uh, structure find the poles for coordination and, and don't don't blur the boundaries because if you're blurring the boundaries you're effectively diminishing or reducing the the adaptive process either from a coordinative point of view or from a structural point of view and there are better ways to do that um and then the question then becomes what are you actually doing um so we start to look at the force velocity curve for instance and then you look at high load and um low sp low speed and low speed and high um high high load and then one starts trying to talk about surfing the force velocity curve well if you're really going after a rate of force development or you're really going after a high torque based training as soon as you start playing about with um that, that force velocity curve for instance um you're reducing the velocity or you're reducing the maximal force production so my my question or my my the bit i can't get my head around is like well actually what are you training are you you're just getting better at jump training at different loads um uh, at different speeds and dan clever wrote this really good article about this um i think just at the beginning of the year or the end of last year um around we should stop talking about force velocity curving and i think it was called, calling it jump load profiling because that's effectively all it is and actually it has no real transfer to changing a maximal force or changing a high velocity characteristic you're just getting better at jumping which then comes back to the global coordinative task of like when you're squatting or you're jumping or you're doing anything like that that is a global coordinative task in itself um and actually when you get better at squatting or you actually get better at squatting you know, you know you're not getting better at running because it's the task itself so you then have to digest what you're actually taking from that to then move into the next bit but yeah so i'm going into a different topic now but um <laughs> yeah so i realize i'm gassing a lot as well no that's perfect that's uh, what podcasts are for so um and i think i probably won't be forgiven by some of the strength conditioning coaches out there if i don't talk about periodization even just briefly but how do you how's your kind of model of periodization or thoughts around periodization changed since you've developed this uh this kind of local global and structural triangle um i think well going back to a bit about the the exercise methodologies and so on and like you go full circle and actually everyone just leg presses um it's kind of gone through that that whole process again like my i don't think my periodization um has changed significantly um i think it's giving more clarity on what i have control over and what i don't so from a 
Um, so I'm still working with some some rowers. Um, um, when I look at the global coordinative components to training, I have very little control over that because that's the rowing event itself. I can I can support the rowing coaches to um, um, uh, apply different um, techniques in the boat to try and uh, elicit greater. Uh, drag to try and increase the, the total resistance that they're they're going through to try and overload a, a force characteristic but i have very little uh impact on that the only bit i really have any impact on is maybe some of the stuff we do on the on the ergo and some of the power strokes that we might do um from a local coordinative state and a structural point of view that's where i spend an awful lot of my time um uh focusing on um and i I kind of just know my boundaries now of, and then even when I was working in kind of more ground-based uh, sports and consulted with some of the team sports around high speed running and so on, like uh, that's a difficult place for me to, to, to get into because ultimately it's, um, there are, uh, well, that's basically the coach's job. Like, like when I work in track and field, that's a coach's job to make them run faster. Um, so I know where my boundary is and I can have discussions and we can talk about it, but I don't, I don't have control of that, so there's no point me trying to um, manage that. So I, my periodization doesn't really change. I just look at um, the exercise selections of do I need more structural, more coordinative-based focus, um, and then I basically just program accordingly, and like, I'm really clear. Um, and I, that triangle I describe, um, and I can I can give you a slide of that to, to share with the podcast as well. Um I still go through that myself when I ever put my exercises down. It's like, well, why am I really doing that? Why is the athlete really doing that? And if I can't define the rationale for it and doesn't fit in there, like, we just go in there. There's, there's no space for that. Um, so it's 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 just clarity. I'm really clear now um, around why things are in or not not out. So I don't think my periodization has, has changed outside of probably just calling it planning rather than periodization now. I suppose. I guess when you've got a much clearer um, uh, and a much more refined list of exercises that you can include to achieve a specific adaptation there's maybe less um competing variables when you're then combining periodization and exercise selection than when you've got maybe more kind of like like you said in the gray area more diluted training variables and you're training you're changing exercises and periodization variables every you know every end of a block yeah Uh, yeah um and again the the, the example I use so years ago I used to be a javelin coach as well and uh, we used to do a lot of standing throwing so no run up throwing just stand there and then like and it looks like javelin you know if you ask what event this guy did you're like well it's javelin throwing but then when you start looking at what what that actually did uh, it start, I started really questioning why you would do standing throws for instance um, because actually um it's the momentum from the the five to seven cross steps that they do and the penultimate and final step that they take that creates this massive uh, release of energy into the, the into the spear which generates an 80 plus meter throw um, yet when they do it for standing throw they're doing 60 meters but they're still trying to throw it maximally and I was, I was lucky enough to do some postgrad research that shows that you know the, the, the shoulder rotation um, significantly increases by about 30 percent the trunk rotation decreases by like 15 percent. so suddenly the throw becomes a, a shoulder base throw well, that's exactly what you don't want in a 
in a, in a javelin thrower. So I'm not change. I'm not. I'm not developing a coordination-based task. That's not a coordination task anymore because the, the rate, magnitude, and timing of muscle contraction, so i.e. coordination, is entirely different. So suddenly my exercise selection has to change to match match that. So if I'm looking for coordination, then the tasks have to be local, locally or globally. And if they can't meet that local or global task, because there was nothing, even at a local level, there's no local coordination going around the shoulder because the rate of magnitude of timing is, um, is, was entirely different. So therefore, it's not internally specific enough. So it changes the way in which you would... I, I started javelin coaching. I just, I'm not standing throwing anymore. And I put that into pitching, for instance, like throwing 60%... Um, balls without a uh, sorry, throwing a pitching a ball at six uh, percent of what you're p- capable of doing might be all right for warm up, but internally and externally, p- a specificity is entirely zero. Um, so there's not there's no real crossover there. So what? Why would you? Why would you do that? I, um, so there has to be a reason for for doing that, it, but it's not coordination because it can't be because if, and I've said it before like rate timing uh, and magnitude of muscle contraction are the critical determinants of uh, coordination from a cellular level so is a rate timing magnitude of a 60% max effort a 60% of max effort or max effort the same well, they're not so entirely coordinatively different tasks um, which which is why sprinting and jogging are entirely um, coordinatively different tasks but yet yeah, we do it in more discrete skills and they're supposed to be coordinative based tasks and you said in some of your um, earlier comments about how you've kind of maybe reclassified max strength and, and power um, can you kind of uh, elaborate on that yeah so um, they're still for me they're still methods like max, max strength is a, is, is a type of training power is a type of training although I would classify power as um, uh, I've just removed the term power entirely from my my vocabulary because everything has like as long if something's moving there's a power output so it's a it's a work loop and it's a um, so when people are talking about power they're really talking about ballistic or uh, high speed base actions so the way in which I've looked at it and what most textbooks will, will tend to give you is methodology first how what it might change and then sets reps tempos loading uh, etc what, what i've gone I've, I've gone back to outcome first like if, if we can be outcome driven first then we can be really explicit about the method we need to to, to change so if we go so i've gone uh, force max or max force uh rate force development uh muscle muscle tendon stiffness uh muscle tendon uh size and w- work capacity um and that should give real clarity of what we're talking about now so maximum force i don't think there's any ambiguity of what we're trying to change the rate of force development i don't think there's any ambiguity of what we're trying to um uh change there and then we can talk about oh, it's heavy strength training or it's ballistic or explosive strength training whatever we, we, we want to want to uh term it but i i, I always go outcome then method and that gives us real clarity and if we have real clarity aligned to our purpose and our outcome or the thing we need to change then it comes we can go straight back to okay what outcome of adaptation do we need well that's the one okay it's this type of training rather than let's do this type of training because we think this is the outcome we want to achieve it's kind of much more logical in my mind to keep working our way through to clarity to the next point of clarity to the to the methodology I feel like in conversation with the athlete, if you 
tell them that the training intent is rate of force development and you can tell them what that is specifically it's not as it's not going to get a kind of misinterpretation interpretation as say power where an athlete might watch another athlete move a heavy bar slowly and still wrongly say oh that's a powerful athlete there so i feel like it's 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 a clearer language to use once you've explained it yeah absolutely and you know it's it's difficult when the um the guys that lift the heaviest loads outside of strongman is, is called powerlifting, um, and it's a slow. And, and, and the right, it is it is it is powerful because it's um, there is a work loop going on and there is a uh, um, a, a very high degree of power, but it's not power in which we um, describe it. And it, yeah, so you are right, and there, and this is I chatting to a colleague, Steve Reisner, who, who's SNC coach at the EIS and. Um, I think Loughborough University and the other day and we were talking about just clarity of terminology. Like if we, if we can clean up clarity of terminology and then get clarity on, on outcome, like we'd all be talking the same language, but most of the, and even, even the strength coaches, like, and this is where, where the clarity of language came from. We're talking about strength and we we were talking about different things and we still do. And, you know, and our definitions of strength training um, are different to one another. And this is and this isn't a necessarily an S and C thing, but this is a thing that across all the stuff that I do uh, in in sport and outside of sport is um, you need to create a reference point, and then you anchor every conversation against that reference point, and that reference point where we are now is is F max. That's that's our reference point, and we're changing that. Uh, uh, so we're going to make changes against that. If we dif- disagree on the um, definition of that, then we need to come up with an, a shared and agreed and understood definition of it. But that's fundamentally where I think an awful lot of this falls down because our definitions and our reference points are different to one another and we never stop to actually take time to understand that. And it was the example I gave within the rowing, like it we just had a discussion with the physios and they were getting frustrated at me because I was talking about stuff in a different way to what they were talking about. And we're like, they're talking strength, we're talking work capacity. And we're like, wow, we don't need work capacity, we need this. And we're like, oh no, it's the same stuff, crack on. It's amazing how uh, when you clear clear the uh, or create the reference point, and you anchor it against everything against that, how how ninety percent of your problems go away. I think um, talking about maybe language and um, how we communicate things maybe is a nice segue now to um, what you're doing now around kind of learning development and leadership. Um, you know, you've moved away from the EIS a little bit now, and you're the co-owner of Wayfaring. Can you tell us what that is and, and what you're doing in that space? Yeah, so um, Wayfaring originated uh, with a, a couple of colleagues and who um, we were we were all really interested in um, learning and development. And I think where we got to is, is a point of um, we, were, we, were, we were just uh, inquisitive about what we do in sport does it work outside of sport because we were i thought we were quite good at challenging and helping uh, individuals make sense of what was most important to them at the point at which it was important to them and helping them be the center of their own i suppose learning learning journey to coin a a, a commonly used used to frame uh, a term um and we created Wayfaring just to kind of experience to see if we could apply some of the stuff we learned in sport and use a kind of the metaphor of sport and our, our examples of working across four or five Olympic cycles and leading teams within that. Um, 
and see if it applies in, in other worlds. And um, one thing we have worked out: people are people are people, wherever you are and whatever you do. Um, so we, what we we've we've done uh, we've done some um, people development stuff around um, effective teams, around um, uh, what effective leadership is, coaching, mentoring of, of individuals, um, and you know it's it's amazing when you when you first stand up in front of 60 strength conditioning coaches and then you go in front of a, the CEO of, um, of, of, of companies and so on. Like it doesn't matter who you are. Like everyone has still has the same fears and inhibitions and, um, um, uh, things that, that as everyone else else does. Um, and actually me and me and a colleague did went into a, a building, building firm to do some, some work. And, um, he forgot to tell me that it wasn't going to be with the, the the board or the uh, the directors, and it was going to be with the entire organisation, which was right the way from from the board down to the sparkies and the 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 tradesmen and so on like that. So step into this room, and um, he said, "Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, it's, it's everybody." And like my first thought was like, "Oh, we're not going to understand. They're not going to understand what we're doing." And this is this is shameful on me actually. And it's kind of um, I, I learned a lot about myself that day. Um, but ultimately, um, we presented, we, we kind of t- changed the terminology slightly, but the, the metaphor and the, the framing of, um, understanding ourselves, understanding others and understanding context is no different to anybody, whether you're a tradesman or a strength conditioning coach or CEO, like they, 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 they all had the same, um, um, Threats. I think one of them uh, threatened to uh, hunt my uh, colleague down and kill him if he threatened his kids again uh, in a kind of a, um, in, a, in a, one of the tasks that he uh, um, uh, had had, uh, had uh, created. Um, but that came out as a that, whereas other people will describe the emotional thing of like, well, actually, if my if my family are threatened, I will feel like this. This guy just came up and said, "Well, I'm going to hunt you down," um, like. Like everyone has the same emotional response, but you just des- describe describe it or, or express it slightly differently. So, so that's what we're doing, and actually, we've got two quite quite exciting projects going on at the moment. I think the first is um, we've got this piece around making sense of the world right now. Um, so we've got we've created this online uh, tool, which we've asked um, probably about about thirty to thirty five coaches from around. Um, the world and different organisations to to fill in on a kind of weekly basis. We haven't started it yet. We just we're just getting the uh, the uh, the final bits uh, going and it's going out next next week or the week after. But the idea is to help people make sense of what's going on during um, during this time and what's important to them and um, help them capture their their insights it can be as, as minimum kind of once a week but they can do it as much as they want to on a daily or, or multiple times a day and we can basically track their reflections over a um over a period of time and we can send it back to them and say this is your reflections over the last six months or two months let's hopefully it's not six months let's hope it's two weeks um this is your reflections of everything that you've been thinking um the majority of your reflections have been based around uh cabin fever or my kids are driving me nuts or I'm fearful that I'm losing um, income because all my projects have dried up, etc. And then it's like, you know, are these important things for you to discuss right now? Or it's like, actually, some people might start thinking about 
and these kind of examples of mine, like, you know, does sport really matter in this time of um, global um, uh, global unity in a, in a pandemic? And actually, what does really matter? And um, so some people might start thinking about, well, family is much more important. Well, how do I create that? And uh, so we're collecting all of this for an online tool. And then the idea is that um, those in the UK will bring into a room together um, and give them a day to make sense of their reflections and create a kind of a, a community of reflections of basically of what, what it was and help people navigate what that, what that is. Um, and that's kind of something a bit pro bono at the moment that we just thought that'd be quite a nice thing for people to get, uh, get involved in. Um, and the second one is this idea of emerging leaders. So, um, you, you were NSNC previously. Um, you qualified as a uh, as a physio and requalifying and requalifying and requalifying. Um, but the idea is, at some point, people start off in a as a practitioner, and they become into a leadership role. Um, and leadership isn't really taught in a in a kind of educational way with when you're becoming in a in a, as an snc or a physio it's it's not kind of the things that really get get spoken about so our idea is that uh, we're creating a, an emerging leader program for practitioners um which we will kind of uh launch at some point in the next few months with the idea of getting uh those who are stepping into a leadership position or want to understand leadership more um um an opportunity to start really um uh making sense of that and i think what our, our fundamental belief is that leadership is um it's not a position it's more of a mindset and a and a um uh, a behavioral and a, and a, and a uh, way of thinking um much more than the position that you that you hold like uh, and that's a bit that we go after and we help people understand um the kind of the leadership behaviors and what type of leader they want to be and um how would we know if they're being successful and um, really get them to dissect what their leadership challenge is really um, and that's kind of our, our next next big project around that because I thought that'd be quite a cool thing to well I lacked it massively when I was going through um, an institute and it's not through the institute's fault it's just I don't think anyone really knows it until you get to that position it's like well I actually could have really done with some additional support around that but our idea is actually to create some community Again, it's globally, I suppose, as well, because we realise that if you're in this world, you can't all get into a room together. Um, but that's the idea: is to create a, um, or create. It's been created at the moment to to launch that and give that to, uh, an opportunity for people who really want to step into leadership space for the first time. No, it, sound, it sounds great and really useful. I mean, when leading up to having Pete McKnight, who you know, on the on the podcast one of the kind of topics that we bounced around which actually turned out to be the topic was that when he was coming through the ranks and was wanting to progress to being say like a performance director and um and heading up a department he wasn't seeing enough content in our space that would give him insight or um other people's experiences and accounts of of progressing through their career so we ended up doing a bit of a leadership episode with him trying to talk about the stuff that almost he wished he'd had um so i think and i think you made a really good point that you know you can be in a uh being a leader isn't being in a leadership position quote-unquote leadership position you can be a manager but not be a leader at the same time yeah um, yeah and i think um a colleague uh who i've worked with a guy called john neil who's at the ecb but was at ashridge holt um he uh often frame is uh, a brilliant guy but um he often frames this around um 
uh, do you know the difference between leadership and management? Because there is a difference. And often that forces you to stop and think about um, what you do. Um, and yes, there are managerial things that people in leadership roles have to do. But leadership is around people and not task. Um, and I think you can see um, uh, that recently as well like uh what Jacinda Ardern the Prime Minister of New Zealand and uh, took decisive action quickly like and was um empathetic and humanistic in her approaches like we need to save as many lives so and was really clear in her message and didn't wait for more information or more insight she's like now we're going to do this and and you know she's been held as a great great leader and Adam uh, as Adam um I don't know what the guy the commission of the um Adam Silver, the commissioner of the uh, NBA, who shut down all um, NBA games, and basically he he's basically single-handedly removed the mass transit of a million people over a season, and like how much of that has an impact, and has graciously taken the criticism around what's happened and what hasn't happened. But the, these are people who have thought about other people ahead of profit or anything else, and and I think that's where. Uh, and I think that's where like, we sit in our leadership spaces around it's a, it's it's um, a set of behaviours and a, a way of thinking over a, a position or a, a task that needs to be completed. And where can people find more out? About, where can people find you guys? And where's the best place for them to follow your your projects? Um, uh, our, our website is still under construction, um, but um, email is uh, alex at wayfaring dot uk. Um, or you can find me on Twitter at uh, Alex P Wolf. Um, they're the best best places to to do that, and we'll be sharing some of the stuff on social media um, over the coming uh, coming months or so as we as we start moving moving that forward. So if there's anyone who's interested in the kind of the reflections project, for instance, um, like it's it's free to join up. It just needs a commitment of a um, small amount of time each. Um, each week or more if you want to and um yeah we'll make help you make sense or hopefully help you make sense of all the things that have been important to you and where can people find you personally are you active on social media um if if um liking and retweeting other people's tweets is active then yes i am um i yes i i'm normally on 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 twitter but i've been um uh, life has got the better of me in the last few months so um, we will, will well, I will be um, uh, on there a bit more because uh, I'm trying to put some uh, more articles around strength conditioning and, and kind of leadership out over the next uh, couple of weeks as I, as I finish them Cool Well Alex thanks so much for your time and uh, the generosity of detail that you've you've given us around S&C today and, and, and on learning and leadership has been it's been a good conversation and I thank you for your time and thanks for coming on thanks Andy it's always good to be able to give an airspace to uh, just ramble so thank you <laughs> thank you big thanks to Alex Wolf for coming on today's show I won't be the only one in appreciating not only the level of detail and precision that he discussed today's topic of adaptation or outcome-led programming but it was incredibly apparent how much clarity he has around what he does why he does it and then finally how he does it Hearing how methodical and deliberate he is, I've no doubt Wayfaring will be a success and deliver great value in everything that they do. From Alex Wolf today, next episode I'll be speaking to Alex Natera for an excellent discussion and lesson on isometrics and eccentrics, so keep your eyes peeled for that one. 
As usual, today's show notes can be found at informperformance.com. And if you'd like to stay up to date with us, then firstly, hit subscribe to the show. But you can also find us at informperformance in Instagram or at informpod on Twitter. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And thanks for listening to the Inform Performance podcast. <laughs>